Writers come on the show, give me a list of writers they want to be on the show in the future, and I put that all into a big pool and pick from there to see who gets to be on the show. So if you want to be on the show, if you're a writer, make friends with more writers. The show is brought to you by you. Patreon.com slash WTR, like writing the rapids. See, that's pretty clever. Patreon donations will help go to offsetting the cost of doing the show, like buying books and paying for web space, and hopefully in the future doing more shows more frequently and paying people for their time and words. My guest this month is Dan Hoyt. He's the author of the Deathbed Editions from Octopus Books and several poetry chapbooks, including the Terraformers from Third Man Books and the Tree from Solar luxuriance. His collaboration with Mike Klein, We Are the World, was featured in the 2019 Spring Thing Festival of Interactive Fiction, and his collection The Terraformers was the recipient of an Elgin Award by the Science Fiction and Fantasy Poetry Association. His work has also been featured in The Best American Non-Required Reading, Triple Canopy, November, Elderly, and other magazines and anthologies. He currently lives in Nashville. So without further ado, let's get right into it. get a hold of and deathbed editions i'm sort of wondering what you might call your poetry because uh there's a lot of like fragments and short poems and i don't know if i want to call it micro poetry because that has like weird implications in my mind so how would you describe it yeah it's an interesting question um i think for for about 10 years or so i've been writing mostly what I would call a more minimalist aesthetic. Um, but I, I tend not to write poems, like individual poems. I tend to kind of write collections mm-hmm. where I'll, I'll think of um, a concept or a book. Usually it's an object. I think of an object that I want to exist. And sometimes it'll have a title and um, maybe a theme or some kind of format. And then I'll start working on that with a goal in mind and basically plugging in content and the the format i've used a lot i'm um, not for everything but a lot of my stuff is uh where there'll be a collection where it's a bunch of untitled fragments that are assembled together into a larger whole um and the idea is that i like where the fragment itself is is its own thing so it kind of functions in and of itself but then it also functions as a piece, as part of a larger whole. Um, and for whatever reason, that's what I fell into. I, I had originally started trying to write titles for all the fragments and then it just seemed, it just wasn't right, it didn't feel right. So I liked the idea of somebody be able, being able to flip around, land on something and that might be the only thing they read um, or to the kind of uh, narrative momentum that it gets when it's part of a whole. Um, so yeah, so it's 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 a it's a more minimalist aesthetic, um, and it's very it tends to be very aphoristic, uh, these kind of declarative aphorisms, and I'm not sure exactly what my influences were for that, but it's 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 definitely some kind of intersection of you know something you might see in advertising or in philosophy or like mysticism, these very short. Um, 
statements that have you know they feel like they've got the power of truth to them you know whether or not whether or not that's true um but that tends to be what i gravitate toward um and the original genesis of that was i was writing very maximalist poems at some point in my 20s and i had this sort of realization where i was editing stuff and i realized you know I feel like cutting everything but the last line. Like I notice this a lot of people's poems actually where there'd be this poem that's kind of okay and there's all this build up and then it builds up to this amazing last line. And so I was like, well, what if we just just cut everything but the last line? Um, And so that's kind of what I was doing Um, and what I've kind of done since then. I tend to take more of a sculptural approach to poetry where I'm hacking at it and cutting it down to where it's just what you need. And then, um, and I've found that I don't need a lot of other stuff so it's i do that on the on the micro level for each individual fragment or poem and then figuring out how to assemble those together in something that has more of a fluidity and momentum to it okay one of the first things i noticed when i got to the the blood work section of of deathbed editions was how large the book is yeah um like there's a there's an awful lot of white space which is interesting and you know 2019 where uh you know people aren't reading books with paper and you know ecological things and did did you have anything to do with the the format of deathbed editions or is this just how um they put out their books we we talked about it a little bit, um, and I can't remember why we settled on that particular size and or the dimensions of it. Um, but I, I wanted I like something that's a little bit more square, and mm. usually smaller usually smaller format is typically what I like to do just because it's more portable. Um, but there is something about the heft of it that I kind of like like it's like a brick in your hands. Um, and so, you know, they came at me with that dimension and I was like, that's fine. Um, and then, uh, and I, I think it works well. The the white space is a thing, like that's part of these poems, I feel. Um, they rely on that in kind of like a canvas or a wall that a painting is hung on. Like that's kind of how these poems function to me. They have somewhat of a graphical element to them. Not really, but in the sense that you just, you quickly glance at it and you, you take it in in a second, um, as opposed to something that takes a few minutes to absorb. Um, and yeah, but but yeah, so like like I had done a book called uh, Glory Hole a while back. Um, it was a collaborative book I did with this poet John Leon. His section was called Hot Tub, and mine was called Glory Hole. And it was this flip book where you you know you just turn it over, and one side is his poems, and one side mine. And that one we set it on more of a small format, square kind of look to it. Um, and I've kind of done that with some of my chapbooks, but yeah, the Deathbed Editions originally um, was three different books, and I had sent it to Octopus because I was working on them all three simultaneously over several years, and finally was like, okay, these are ready to go. So I sent them to Octopus, thinking they might take one of them, and um, Zach Schomburg, the main editor there, came back and suggested, you know, what if we did? He wanted to do something more ambitious, and he's like, what if we did all three of these? as like a trilogy that's all part of one thing. And I was excited by that idea. And so I spent another year editing them, uh, knowing that they would be together. So there was like some redundancies and things like that I noticed. Um, and uh, 
so yeah, but thinking of them as a cohesive whole was a whole another round of editing. And then I liked the idea of it being kind of massive um, and ambitious. And I think maybe that might've informed the size a bit just to, to be aligned with that. Well, I like it. It's certainly like very obviously different than any of the other poetry books I have on my bookshelf, which for full disclosure, I would do not read too much poetry. Um, more, more just out of lack of education than lack of interest. Yeah. But like every other poetry book I have is kind of like the exact same shape and length and size. And there, there's something interesting about poetry to me as sort of an outsider looking in on it where there's the, the poetry that is academic and then there's the poetry that's very young and hip, um, you know, your, your Instagram poetries and, um, like the alt lit stuff from a couple years ago. And they, they seem to be at odds with each other. And yours almost made me think more of like haiku than anything else. Like, like Mm -hmm. Buddhist poetry, like that sort of, um, you know, koan esque sort of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was going to turn that into a question, but you, you were already going. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it felt like one of those questions that's not a question. Um, but uh, yeah, I was. it's interesting. When I first started reading poetry, um, or, or seriously, kind of, kind of really clicking with it, was in my early 20s. Um, I'd been writing before then, but kind of just doing my own thing. But I remember... Um, that Sufi poet Rumi who's like you know like a popular new age poet definitely not something hip but that was the first one I really connected with where I could see what he was doing and it was very the poems I was most attracted to were these very short things that would have this very startling direct address where he almost would flip the script on you and kind of these epiphanal moments Um, and so I can think of like a similar uh comparison more mainstream poetry would be i think it's a rilke poem where at the very end of it he's like suddenly says uh you must change your life and rumi has a lot of stuff like that that i was really attracted to um and i and that's and i've been drawn to more like i don't know mystical literature um or like you know ceremonial magic texts or like gnostic scripture things like that uh, or you know um, various other traditions. So that's kind of the thing that I'm most attracted to. And um, like, I'm not writing like what you might call like a secular type poetry, even though it has those kind of elements and kind of plays with that. But um, but yeah, so, so that is kind of what I'm into, something that might be more of like an oracle type feel or a prophet type feel. Those are kind of things that I respond to for whatever reason. And so that's kind of the thing that I'm drawn to when I'm writing. And even when, um, even when I'm writing stuff that's not as minimalist, like in Deathbed Editions, that, that opening sections, these kind of prose poems, and it's more of like this, this jocular narrator um, kind of moving along and these vectors of privilege and things like that. And even with that, there's these moments of what I would call like infinitude piercing through um, that like web of action. And uh, those are kind of, to me, the moments that my poetry orbits around and wants to produce. 
Yeah, that makes sense to me. Um, there, there were a lot of um, kind of fragments that I've read that felt very um, like proscriptive, sort of, yeah. sort of like um, almost like revolutionary. Yeah, there's a, there there a lot of the stuff that stuck out to me. I mean, that's like the nonfiction that I'm reading right now is a lot of like of the old revolutionary type people who, you know, were calling for guillotines and whatnot. So that's that's sort of like all the room that there is for me to put my own stuff into what I'm reading uh, and something that has like that much literal space on the page is, is sort of where I went. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in, um, to that point, kind of like revolt. Um, and because it's very similar to the thing I was just mentioning about these sort of mystical epiphanies. Uh, or I think of like the, um, uh, like that, the biblical story of Paul on the road to Damascus, right? He's blinded by the, the dust and light or whatever it is. And it changes his whole life at that point. Um, but having that kind of encounter um, where everything's turned upside down or upheaved um, and whether that's, you know, political revolts in the moment, just a total rejection of whatever system, uh, unnatural system is in play, or whether it's, you know, more of a, uh, you know, internal kind of revolt that's happening. Those kind of movements are things that interest me. And I think that, you know, if, if poetry has some kind of political function, like that would be it, right? Like it's not, it's not going to do anything in the sense of, um, you know, changing some kind of system of government, um, but it can catalyze people um, and inspire them in ways to not tolerate certain, you know, certain ways of being. That makes sense to me too. Uh, another thing that I noticed is, is that the, the length of, of each line um, and the amount of like stanzas that you use per fragment uh, really allows for that sort of like double triple meaning sort of thing that I, mm-hmm. I notice in poetry. There's a lot of um, stanzas that almost feel like it's about to be a question, and then there's mm-hmm. like a short one line stanza. Uh, is that an intentional thing? Yeah, I think um, the way I use like in Jamnant and stanza breaks in uh, in these these types of poems we're talking about these smaller pieces um like in my mind it's almost like i'm taking a stick and snapping it over my knee or something like that Mm. um and and yeah there's several different reasons why i'll do that and one of them's like what you're getting at where there's maybe you're in the middle of a sentence and there's like a thousand different places it can go and so snapping it right there when all those possibilities are still at, in play and then drop into the next line um, and picking one of those. And maybe it's one of them that's uh, maybe that's a little bit more subverting where you'd expect the line to go. Um, I'll also do it for rhythm or phonetic reasons sometimes. And that's more intuitive where I'll feel like there needs to be kind of a hesitation or a pause and not necessarily when I read it out loud, but when the reader is reading it in their mind, I feel like sometimes that sort of hiccup um, can help unfold the pieces of thought in the way I think is is most effective or appropriate. Um, 
but yeah, I like I like the dimensionality that's cre- that poetry specific because prose doesn't really do this. When you're using line breaks, you can totally start writing something, and you're like you're leading the reader down a certain path, and then you snap it in half, drop them to the next line, and suddenly they're like, oh, this is going somewhere completely different. And so, just very simple little moments of surprise to keep uh, keep people engaged and keep the momentum going. And then you get both you get you get the the original meaning you were kind of leading them toward, the new meaning you've dropped them down, and then the interplay between them, you know that because that also has a some kind of semantic content as well. Um, yeah, so that's yeah it's and a lot of it's intuitive, but that's definitely something going on. And sometimes it's like really overt, and maybe ham-fisted uh, those line breaks, and sometimes they're a little bit more subtle and hard to pick up on what's going on. Well, that's one of the things that when I had to write poetry for classes in college, I was always drawn to trying to do, but every time I did it, it always felt kind of too cute. Yep. And yep. I, I never really found a way to even like capitalize on the, the cutesiness of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- one of the blocks for me with poetry, because I enjoy writing things that aren't... Um, necessarily narrative i i enjoy writing strings of words for the the interplay between the words themselves which i guess could lead itself to poetry um but i but i always felt like there there was the i don't even necessarily know how to describe it but like a, m- too much winking on my part at yeah. the reader yeah no, I think that's a thing. Like, um, like when I was talking about the titles and having trouble with it sometimes and just stripping them out, it was kind of that same feeling where I was like, it, there was just something about it where I was like, I just get rid of this and just be and just play it straight and trust the reader to go along with this. Um, so actually, so another good example of that is in in Deathbed Editions, that whole last section called Michael Madonna. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was me taking, I just, again, that was like a concept piece where I'm like, oh, I was realizing like that Michael Jackson Madonna were born like in the same month and year, and they kind of had a similar rise and peak um, in terms of their influence in pop culture. And that was, you know, around like 80, I would say like April of 85, 1985, I had to like pinpoint the exact moment when they're kind of both riding high and then he of course had this very precipitous fall and hers was more gradual but i i was interested in writing taking them because they both had these kind of mystical names like her name means like the mother of god on earth essentially and michael's one of the um you know the arch archangel's names um so so i was like what if i took their um all their singles and treated it kind of this this conversation that's happening between them or a fusion of them and arranged in chronological order and then just wrote these little tiny um, poem, like these poems, these kind of cones or Gnostic conundrum things. And, but I did it out of lyrics, uh, lyrics in the, in the songs. So just kind of stripped it down and took pieces out to make this. Um, so I did that, like I just sat down like a couple days and wrote the original draft of that, which was satisfying for me just because I was kind of engaging with these these, this framework from my formative years in like the early eighties, um, and, but redoing it, something that's totally different, but, but I've had trouble like reading them out loud. Um, and the reason is, uh, because it has that kind of winky tone to, it. as soon as I say the title, like I'll say like, like a virgin or something. And then the poem becomes kind of this punchline 
It's like, and so what I've been wanting to do, which I haven't done yet, but I'll probably do this coming up here pretty soon, is instead of me verbalizing the title, I've got it projected behind me. And then I'm allowed to just say, just run right into the poem and the audience can see the, the title behind me. So they're taking it in in a different sense. And then, and then you just run through it like that where the titles are kind of cycling through. And for whatever reason, that addresses that weird feeling I have, that winking feeling where it becomes something totally different. Cause it's, cause it's no longer a, like a stand-up comic, like saying the title and it's like, whatever, this like cheap pop song and then going into the poem and it's kind of this like one line joke and that kind of thing. Cause I want it to be where this humor is more subtle and more complex and so yeah anyway so that kind of solved that issue for me or i'm assuming it would i haven't actually tried it yet <laughs> um but but yeah but that's but to your point like that's kind of the thing like that's really tone is everything in poetry and trying to figure out how to communicate the tone you want and the tone because the tone is the vessel of whatever message is there right and sometimes you don't care what the message is it's just it is whatever the poem wants it to be but the tone really matters and that's kind of the challenge um and usually when i like or don't like poetry that i'm reading it's a question of tone like something i'll just be like oh this is a little too this or a little too that or like this is nailing it or this is a crazy tone i hadn't even thought of um like that kind of thing but it's yeah it's it's hard and that just comes with like craft right like i feel it's like you've got an intuitive sense for it or you develop it over time and you run into trouble like i've got I've written things that I've just like thrown away, like entire collections, because I'm like, there's something fundamentally wrong with the tone here, and I couldn't quite figure it out, so I just tossed it, you know. I understand that. The, the, I have a poetry graveyard around here somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> uh, how fast do you write? That's another thing that that always mystifies me with poetry, like both reading it and imagining people writing it like i feel like it has to be a lot slower than it seems like it is and it's an unwritten rule that makes no sense to me that i've created for myself yeah people are different um i write pretty slow um or at least i feel i write slow uh like i remember when i first started with the more minimalist approach um it was that book glory hole i mentioned and at the time it was kind of out of necessity because I was working just crazy. I, I was living in New York and had this, um, I was working at this marketing agency and was just like, you know, overworked. And so my time to write would be at like midnight to 2 a.m. about that. So it was this kind of very slow, quiet, dark time of night. And I would just work on these little, basically a puzzle. And so the same poem I'd work on for a while. And I mean, you'd see it and you'd be like, you know, why would that take you several days or even weeks sometimes to work on? But because I'd have to kind of sit with it and feel it out. And sometimes you'll feel that there's a hinge that's not quite right. Um, so I'd try something different, just let it sit there for a while and then work on something else. But yeah, I, I tend to work pretty slow um, or I'll work in bursts. And that's, that's another way that'll happen where it's like, I'll have this just like a weekend or something or a week where I bang out a bunch of stuff and then kind of sit on it, um, tweak it a bit, feel it out from the inside and then maybe do another burst later. But um, I'd like to be more prolific than I am right now. But I mean, that's just, it just kind of comes in, in different cycles, you know. And sometimes you're working on other stuff, right? Like, 
um, you know, if you've got other mediums you're working with, or just like other stuff going on in your life that requires your creative energy, it's like that. So there's always something going on. But for writing, I feel like it's it for me. I spend a lot more time on it than you would think, based on what the actual output is. Um, and a lot of it's just me kind of sitting with it and intuitively feeling it out, trying to identify what feels wrong, and then once you do that, like what's what's the solution to that you know sometimes i figure it out sometimes i don't sure yeah i guess that's one, that's one of those things where editing is as much of a skill as writing is right yeah yeah like sometimes i want um i'll be like man i really wish i had like another version of me that could just look at this and piece it together like i was working on something the other day just to try it out just something different where i was pulling different lines and stuff from some disparate pieces I'd written. And I wanted to assemble that into its own thing and see what it looked like. And I was having a really hard time putting them together, like figuring out the order. And I even printed them out, which I normally don't do. Had them cut out like all these lines and was just on the floor assembling them like a puzzle. Cause I'm trying to get little modules. Like maybe here's five lines that I know go together. These are a unit. And then over here, maybe there's another seven lines that I'm pretty sure go together. And then figuring out how all these little modules assemble. And I just was having the hardest time with it. And I, I really wanted just another person, another brain to look at it. You know, it's like, it's like my brain created all the content, but I really needed somebody else to come and assemble it. Um, and that may be why it takes, for me, poetry takes so long, because it's like I need to shift into that other mode. And it's not as simple as just like pulling an emergency break and doing it. Like it's, it can be really challenging to step out because to your point it's more of like an outsider editor viewpoint where you're not emotionally invested in any of this any of the lines um you know you're not over determining anything you're like free to cut and add and subtract and move around and that kind of thing that exercise almost seems like like a like an old surrealist or dadaist game but yeah. you're the way you're describing it is like doing that for the benefit of a more industrial sort of thing, right? Like putting things into modules and units and, and then affixing them together in ways that make sense for the um, desired output. Yeah. Yeah. Cause ultimately I want like an object that goes out into the world. And so I guess that is kind of a per an industrial or production oriented approach. Um, and I, that way for several reasons, like I just find it satisfying for me personally. Like it's like you, you're engaging with your audience when you do that. Um, it's, you know, giving your work, it's kind of like feeling like you're breathing life into it, letting it go out on its own. And there's like a pot, there's a positive feedback type cycle to that. Um, I mean, even if people don't like it, just the idea that it goes out and you're actually producing something instead of it just sitting on your laptop or whatever. Um, yeah. And also just like, creating things that are physical and embodied um, since so much of poetry for me at least is a disembodied experience and even a lot of my work life has been like that and I struggle with that so that's so to me I want things to be real it's like to make like an object is kind of like a miracle to bring this thing into being and it's physical and you can touch it um, you know exchange it with people um, leave it somewhere for someone to discover like all that kind of stuff it's just it just has a different texture to it that I find really um, appealing. Um, and that's not to say I don't like, you know, stuff that's online and digital, like that has its place too. But um, there's something special, I think, about 
about producing an object. Um, and like I said, professionally, I worked as a project manager for a long time in, in digital marketing. And so, so I have somewhat certain skills that I'm sure bleed into this where I'm like, okay, I'm going to incrementally go through where I'm conceiving something, I'm kind of sketching it out, now I'm moving into actually creating the content, and now I'm moving into a distribution strategy or like what kind of marketing I want to do for it. Because I like to make videos for mm-hmm. my books. And so that book I mentioned, Glory Hole, John, like John Lee and I, as far as I know, we were like the first ones to make book trailers for a book. Um, this is like 2000, I don't know, 2004 or five. And um, both of us were just, we had kind of a shared pop aesthetic um, and uh, you know, really related to, to certain aspects of each other's work. And part of that very easily bled into like, let's, like we wanted to make book trailers because we were both really into movies and, and movie trailers as an art form in and of itself. Um, and so sometimes I would, I would conceive of a video first, like I would have this idea of distilling a book down to its essence in this you know, somewhat evocative way with music and that kind of thing. Um, and I've had instances where I've thought of that first and actually just made the video and never even wrote the book. Like I just never got around to it or just, you know, it just didn't come into being. But, um, but that's part of it too. Like I like thinking through all these different aspects of the work and the different ways it can kind of interact with people. Um, you know, I'd love to make actually like posters, like a movie poster type thing for a book. I think it'd be really fun. Um, and you know, this selecting the one line or something that from the book, the work that acts as like a log line for the entire work, I think is really interesting. You know, letting something have that dual function of it being buried in the piece, but also it's extracted and acts as a entryway to the entire work. Um, I really like that kind of thing. That reminds me a little bit of there was a time uh, when I was taking a creative writing class in college where we sat down. There were two poets came in, and I can't remember either of their names, but uh, somebody asked them about, like, how do you know when a poem is, is good or done or what's your writing process? There's some sort of amalgam of that sort of question. Yeah. And the guy who was there was an older guy and said, well, my dad was a woodworker, so I approach it like that. Like I'm crafting a piece of, of something. Yeah. And like, so I have like rules for my craft and I make sure that it fits those rules and that's how I know when it's good like when I've made something good and it's an interesting thing to have the word craft applied to writing actually be sort of a reflection of an actual like uh some making something with your hands sort of thing yeah and and something that has utility Mm -hmm. you know and I think that's the key thing it's like but it's very intuitive, right? Like, how do you decide if a poem has utility or not? You know, it has it has a useful function, a useful value to somebody. Um, but that's, I think, I do think that's right. It's like, like you might be assembling, like, if let's to use your analogy of like the woodworking, you're you're starting to cut something together. You're not quite sure what you're making yet, but you know you want it to have function, and maybe it's got some joints or some levers or something, or some dimensionality to it. And for me, I almost don't care like what the specific function is, but I do want it to have function. Like I want it to feel complete. It's this, it's a mechanism like a prism or something that has 
these kind of effects on the reader. Um, and so once that's done, then I'm like, okay, this is done. Um, at least for the, at an individual unit level, a poem level. Now, if I'm creating a work, I have a, uh, like an entire book, I have a similar approach where I'm, you know, putting all these individual complete poems in it. But sometimes I'll see gaps. Like I'll be like, I'm arranging these this way. And I feel like I need something here for the work as a whole to have the appropriate utility. And so I might write something new to plug in that, uh, to like as a joint to connect two pieces. Um, but yeah, I do think I do think that's that's an apt analogy, and I think probably most everybody works that way, whether they realize it or not. Yeah, I. Uh, uh, that same professor who who brought those poets in always talked about how he hates the way that high school teaches poetry because you sort of teach it as a riddle to be solved. You know, what did the the poet mean when he you know said that the wind blows like a whatever? You know, like yeah, wh- yeah. <laughs> what does that mean? Uh, and and so it's an interesting thing because one of the things I kind of noticed when I was researching you for this is there's not a lot about there's not a lot of you on the internet. Yeah. Um. So I got a lot more of me out of your poems than I did of you necessarily. Yeah. As opposed to reading like um, oh, what's his name like Frederick Seidel I think is his first name. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Who is a super rich guy by birth who kind of hates it. And so, like, you can't help but read his poetry through that lens. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure. So, I, I'm, I'm aware of that. Like, I'm a little bit more discreet. Um, and I'm not sure why that is. But it plays into... But it but it seems like it's aligned with my aesthetic anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like, I don't... You know, like, I've... like So, I've experienced a lot of... Um, bodily trauma and like medical trauma in my life and but i'm not writing poems that are about like my experience being cut open and stapled back together and things like that um or various other horrifying things i've experienced but what i am doing is taking that energy right like i'm obviously drawing from that energy sometimes and that fight right and that's coming and then transmuting that into things that interest me um like because i'm not interested in in writing a memoir like that i mean maybe i would you know but but generally speaking i'm I'm not um and but i you know i have all these so to me i'm like taking that kind of energy taking certain things i have interest in whether it's like aliens or outer space or survivalism or celebrity or mysticism or you know revolt all these things that um that have a certain charge for me and I'm and I'm using those as kind of the material, but the spirit that's infusing that is the spirit of my experiences, right? Um, and so, yeah. So I tend not to. I tend to be a little bit more discreet, um, but uh, like even on social media and stuff, um, like Twitter, I avoided for years, um, even though it's probably a very appropriate format for me just given that it's kind of you know it's it's character constraints mm-hmm. um you know like most of my poems could probably fit <laughs> in a tweet um 
but even that I was trepidatious about. Um, but I really like I really like Twitter now, so I'm on there now. And Instagram was something I only got on recently. I think within the last like three or four months, and that I've really liked too. I'm like, oh, there's this. I just didn't realize like the whole medium of it um, is really appropriate. Like I'm like, oh, I can make little videos on the fly with text and things like that. This is stuff I do anyway. But um, you know, so there'll be personal stuff that slips in there. But for the most part, I'm more interested in creating. Um, and people getting to know me, so to speak, through what I'm creating, uh, or or if they're inhabiting space with me, like physically, like what it's like to be around me, as opposed to me kind of talking about who I am, if that makes sense. Sure, I I can appreciate that. I I envy that a little bit. I wish I could be more mysterious online. Yeah. Well, there's, uh, and there's something to be said for that mystery, right? Like authors who cult- cultivate that kind of air of mystery. I think that that's maybe a lost art. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's also, it, it's a double-edged sword. I remember reading something from like HTML giant a long time ago. Like I was going through their archives after they had died the first time. Yeah. And somebody brought up a novel written by some guy that seemed really interesting but i couldn't tell you who the guy is what the novel's called <laughs> or, or anything like that when it was yeah. published because the guy like the thing that i read was an interview with the guy and he's just basically like yeah you're never going to know who i am i wrote yeah. the book read the book the book is the book i don't want any part of me polluting it and obviously that's a lot more extreme than yeah than you but I also will never be able to find or buy that book unless I come across it by accident. So, (laughs) but I also appreciate the whole, like I I work, I work in, in radio and TV and just like I'm, I'm on the production side. So watching the hosts like dutifully go through and accept friend requests on Facebook and take pictures of the sunrise with the microphone in the frame. Like that seems so exhausting. Yeah. It's exhausting. It's exactly right. Like, um, like I have a friend, my friend Julia, I hope she doesn't mind me talking about her, but my friend Julia Benchavinga is a great poet in LA. She, like I've noticed when she, like she's super prolific and just her, like spirited pessimism wit, like all that stuff. Like when she's feeling down, it's just this energy flows out of her. It's just, and it's crazy. It's like really amazing. Um, and when I'm cycling like that, like I get quiet and withdrawn, like I shut down. Um, and it's like, um, so it's like everybody's got their different energies. Yeah. But I do find it exhausting, like to be constantly on and think of that. And like, you can kind of habitualize it and get good at it where maybe it doesn't require as much energy um, but I'm, I'm very conscious of the amount of labor involved in that, especially some, you know, as somebody who's worked in marketing and, uh, and, you know, there's like entire teams devoted to doing this kind of shit. Like, um, yeah, it's like, it's a labor cost to me and either I'm fine with it and I'm able to produce that and, you know, add that extra dimension to, you know, of being personable <laughs> or, mm-hmm. or I'm just not able to do it. I'm not able to summon the energy to do it, you know? And I was I was anemic for many years, and so struggled with, with with that kind of thing, just being present, having energy. Um, I'm sure that's like you know I don't struggle with that issue anymore, but I'm sure that imprinted on me in some ways, you know. Sure. Do you currently have a day job, or are you just doing writing full time? I do. I do have a day job. Um, 
so which I which I like uh, for the most part as much as you can like a job. Um, so I'm currently I oversee operations for a, a plant nursery garden center, um, and was very thankful to to get that gig because um, for like you know I, I fell into to the marketing world just kind of on accident where I had a friend um, who worked as a copywriter um, in uh, out of grad school and I needed health insurance and so I started as an intern. And then just kept doing that. Um, and I found it to be a really dysfunctional industry for the most part. There's high turnover. Um, there's a lot of pressure and things not going right and you being put in situations you shouldn't be put in. Um, but I learned a lot during that time and was able to survive and, um, and do well. But to take those kind of skills, like these, like, you know, I'm a creative person, right? So I didn't start out with like any kind of um, discipline and management skills, but it's like, I've learned that. So to be able to take that, you know, extract myself from this kind of line of work that, you know, I had a very ambivalent relationship with and to now the core meaning of what I'm doing for work is about bringing people together with plants. And, you know, even if it's like people just want an Instagram plant, like something that's like a monstera that looks dope in this concrete planter or something, um, like I'm fine with that because I kind of feel like, like I'm very aware, and this comes out in my poetry, like I'm very aware of this, the alienating effects of civilization. I don't mean just like, I mean like literally alienating, like it's like we're aliens on this planet and we're constantly put in weird postures and doing weird things with our time that are not healthy. Our, our, our body and time are manipulated and contorted in these weird ways. And like, if you had asked me like, what's like the purpose of human life or what's our main function, I would say it's to work with plants because that's our sustenance, right? Um, and so most people don't do that. Um, some people do it, you know, a little bit, like they've got house plants or maybe a small garden, but anything I feel that is contributing to that and bringing people back into that way of being, a way of being in their body, to me is is fruitful and, and meaningful. So literally everything I do there, there's a lot of annoying things I do there. So, so there's, it's not like a perfect job, but but the but it's fine because the core thing that we're orbiting around um, to me is very very meaningful. So yeah, and so I've, you know I've learned more about plants since working because I didn't know anything about it when I started. I started working there just kind of at, on the side as a register operator. And then eventually, you know, start doing more stuff and and bring my other skills to the table. Hmm, that's really cool. I like that. I I, I kind of identify with with that struggle a little bit. I'm definitely like earlier on the path than you are, but that same sort of like um working in an industry that's weird. Mm-hmm. Um. Like there's there's so many weird things about working at a radio station, working especially for one of the bigger ones, um, one yeah. one of the, the like the bigger corporations, and at, at a bigger station in the in the market, um, and just like the 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 dreadful irony of it all. Like mm-hmm. we're in the communications industry, and how come nobody told us that this is a thing that needs to happen today before like 15 minutes before the show starts sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, totally. This is our job totally. guys. Um, and, and 
I mean, I work for a news talk station and like every everything on the air after we get done is like completely counter yeah what i'm for as a human being yeah and uh, and reconcile yeah and reconciling with that and how that impacts your spirit and you know how you feel all that kind of stuff yeah and 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 it's not always like like i was able to appreciate certain things like you know oh these people i work with most of them are fine they're fine human beings mm-hmm. and it could be a lot worse and we're just kind of in this together and we got to figure out how to get everybody home at a decent hour so they can do whatever the hell it is they want to do with their lives you know um but yeah it's hard it's kind of this poison you know and it's not just like for me i spiral because i'll be like oh it's it's the industry and the apparatus that that industry is and it being a conduit of certain you know ideological forces and things like that and then and then you think larger and oh it's just this piece and then you know i start thinking like man it's this entire world is this poison and that definitely obviously comes through in my poetry um is you know sort of this condemnation condemnation at times of you know what uh what human beings have done to themselves i guess um but uh, yeah like for me the big dichotomy is world versus earth and earth kind of representing just like how we are like if we're just a creature on this planet and world being kind of the, the layer the control layer that's superimposed on that, that manipulates things, that misallocates resources and does all sorts of fucked up things that makes everybody feel the way they feel. Um, yeah, it's hard. It's hard going through, you know, I, I would say that most people probably have that kind of ambivalent or just negative <laughs> uh, relationship with the place that they spend the majority of their waking life, you know? Absolutely. I did that reminds me as I was like flipping through you did have a a fragment in uh, Deathbed Editions that ends with the earth is where we bury our dead so it's an interesting thing cool I'm making connections that's good yeah yeah Um, and like uh, yeah I think the big line was uh, the world is the end of the world mm -hmm. Um, like this idea like the world like the world not, not the earth right but like the world is like this governing structure um yeah it's it's like yeah it's already ended or it's already ending you know it's an ending force mhm uh i think that's a good time to pivot to the terraformers yeah um i read it this morning because you sent it to me in a pdf um and i i had read mike klein's review on goodreads a couple of days ago yeah, and there's a lot. Of, there's a lot packed into this chat book. There's the the page numbers, which is the little astronaut head, and yeah. there's the the planet with the little dot moving around it, which could be a lot of things, and the the illustrations. And I found the uh, the font that uh, is used to be really interesting too. Yeah, I worked with. Um third man books on that uh so third man books i'm a big fan of they're based in nashville um relatively young press i would say less than five years old um and they birthed out of third man records which is jack white's label so there's some muscle so to speak behind it 
um, which is a different experience for me. You know, like they've got an in-house design team and they've got this crazy facility that's kind of like, I'm sure I'm not the first to make this comparison, but kind of has like a Willy Wonka type feel to it where, um, you know, there's a, there's a venue space, uh, there's a record store, there's this backend kind of storage space and office space and all of it is infused with, you know, Jack White's kind of aesthetic, uh, which is very detailed, um, you know, or, or fascist, depending on your point of view. <laughs> but he, but I have a lot of respect for him actually. After sort of learning more about him, um, but uh, it's, um, but it's great. Uh, so I came to my friend Chet Weiss runs uh, Thurman Books, and I, I knew he was in the sci-fi, and I knew that they had started publishing chapbooks. They had put out uh, my friend Siona Rouse's book Venta Black, which is a great chapbook. And I asked him, I was like, hey, I wrote this thing. I've been sitting on it for like two years. Um, it's a sci-fi poetry chapbook. Would you be interested? And he was like, you know, of course. So I sent it to him. He liked it. And then he came back and he was like, what if we made it illustrated? And I was like, great, perfect. You know, I am like, awesome. And then he came back and he said, what if we made it a flip book? Um, you know, we've got these little animations in the corners. And I was like, fantastic. I've always wanted a flip book, never had one. Let's go for it. So I really liked their, like their creative shop. So they're coming to you with ideas. They want to make cool objects. Um, I really appreciated that. And so um, for the illustrations, uh, I gave them input. They asked, so like, it's almost like I'm giving them creative direction. So I picked a few poems. And I was like, you know, here's kind of my idea of an illustration that could be paired with it and then pass that on to this designer, Tristan McNatt, who's great, who works there. And he came back with illustrations. And I was like, these are perfect. You know, it's like he's nailed it right away. Um, and we kind of concepted from there. And like, like we had made a flyer first before we'd gotten into the book um, for I think it's because we'd agreed to do this at AWP, like right before we were heading to. Uh, to the big writers conference and sure. so chet yeah chet wanted to promote it even though we literally just agreed to do it and so that was like the first one where i gave them i was like oh i want this like you know omega shaped hoof symbol kind of buried half buried in this mars like landscape and there's like whatever like moon or something in the background and i and like tristan illustrated this thing his style was just perfect it was like kind of this retro sci-fi retro style that really nailed it and so we just made like a flyer to start and then took that and then built out the rest of the book kind of similarly. But um, but what was really interesting to me about that process is we had a moment where Chet was reading through it with the illustrations and he came to me and he was like, he's like, I'm noticing something weird and I want to talk to you about it. And and he was he was commenting on the fact that my poems, like this minimalist style I do, it, they really rely on white space and this certain quiet mode um to where the words kind of resonate there and that's a big part of how they're effective and he was noticing that with the illustrations that was removed somewhat it's a, and it's a different ex experience of intaking the work and he was worried that it was detracting from it and i told him i was basically like look i have like dozens of chapbooks or however many right but i've written a lot of chapbooks that have no illustrations. <laughs> I haven't written any that have illustrations, so I'm totally down to let this one live this way, you know? Um, and in the back of my mind, I'm like, eventually I'm gonna put this as part of a larger manuscript anyway, so I'm 
I'll give it life again somewhere. So let's just do this. Let's just focus on making a really uh, unique object that, you know, there's not very, I don't know if there's any poetry, sci-fi, illustrated flipbook chapbook that exists, you know, but now there is. Um, so I'm really excited about that. Yeah, I mean, that's, that seems to be the the most niche market that you could get. <laughs> yeah. But I, I like it. I, you know, I've had John Treffery on this show and, and the whole like book is object thing definitely comes through in your, your work too. Um, we're, we're running low on time. So let's, let's sure. pivot to, um, we are the world that you did with Mike Klein, who's also been on yeah. the show and I'm very yeah. excited about that whole thing. Yeah. I'm a, um, yeah, I'm a fan of Mike's in addition to collaborator. Like he had reached out to me a few years ago, um, I didn't know who he was. He reached out to me just because he'd seen some of my work and wanted to swap books. And so we did that. I loved, you know, the books that he'd sent to me. Um, and then a couple of years after that, he reached out again um, and was interested in doing a, a collab- just a collaboration. He said, you know, he wanted to do collaborations in general and was wanted to see, gauge my interest in it. And I was like, great. Because I at that point, I was kind of not being productive. It was when I was writing things and throwing them away. So I really wanted to get out of my own patterns anyway. And I liked collaborating in general and I was missing it because I wasn't, I wasn't doing anything like that at the time. So we just opened a Google Doc and started, and, and we laid kind of the ground rules, which weren't really rules. It was just both of us agreed because we just had a similar approach where we're like, we don't care if what we write is good or bad. Um, we just care about the process and being creative and making something that neither one of us would have made on our own. And so since we were both on the same page like that, it was very easy, um, you know, cause you don't like, there can be two people who's get along aesthetically, but they just can't collaborate, you know, it just doesn't work. But he and I, have a, I feel a really good collaborative uh, working relationship. Um, and so we started writing back and forth, just these kind of stanzas, didn't re- really know what we were doing. Um, and then he eventually went in, we kind of paused at some point, I think I was busy with work and so wasn't really doing as much. And he went through and reshaped the narrative to be this detective, mystery, thriller, occult thing. And um, and I was into it. And then we wrote the rest of it that way. So we wrote an entire like novella together um, that you know we're still kind of shopping around called uh, "Where the Sky Meets the Ocean and the Air Tastes Like Metal and the Birds Don't Make a Sound." So this is a long title, uh, mm-hmm. which I also liked because I don't normally have long titles, you know. So I would say like that one was kind of like 70 to 80% Mike, I feel, uh, because it was me really melding with him and I wanted to get out of my own shit and let him drive. And so it was a great experience. Um, And he's very prolific and easy to work with. So we'd written that, um, which is a really satisfying experience. And then I got this idea for another one uh, where I wanted to do We Are The World. So it just kind of hit me where I was like, I want to take this song, um, you know, this this weird benefit single from 1985 that was kind of this cultural milestone in the, you know, in the middle of the 80s that was like a phenomenon, you know, like sold, I don't know, it's like one of the top 10 selling singles of all time. And, mm-hmm. and, and I think always when I think of it, I think of the, um, there's this Genesis video for Land of Confusion that's all like these Muppet kind oh, of, yep. cre- yeah. And it's really disturbing kind of feeling, right? It's like Ronald Reagan running around and there's like nukes going off and he's wearing a Superman costume. It's just weird. 
it's very grotesque. Um, but there's a whole sequence where you see all these kind of grotesque Muppet faces of people singing We Are the World. And so that's what I think of when I think of it. Um, so I wanted to do it, to, to write about the, the making of it, but do it as a horror story, more or less, um, and then have each chapter or whatever you want to call it, prose poem, be named after one of the um, main participants. So there's about 20-something soloists and then 40 people participating all together. So the rest of them are just like the chorus, right? Uh, like the Pointer Sisters are there. Uh, Huey Lewis in the news is there. Huey has his little you know solo, but the news don't, right? Mm-hmm. So there's there's a few people involved. Um, and so I wanted to do it where we where there'd be you know a chapter for each one. So like Lionel Richie's first, and it'd be in the order in which they their lines appear, and then end with the chorus. So I laid it out for Mike because I was like, Mike, I really would like to collaborate with you because I think the feeling I'm going for is something you'd be really good at, kind of this carnivalesque type mode where there's all these characters because he's i feel really good with names and characters and just having things happen um and so i sent it to him and i even did i think i even wrote like some spec like i wrote a couple of them just to give him a sense of what i was thinking and he wrote back and he's like awesome idea love to participate (laughs) he said i hope he's okay with me saying this he was like he was like, to be honest, I don't know who half these people are, you know, because he's much younger than I am. So it was funny to me, um, that kind of generational gap. But I was like, it doesn't matter, you know, because when he writes anyway, like the name is just a name. Like it doesn't really matter. Like, and I was just do it like you normally do it. Like take, you know, Kim Carnes and just, you don't need to read about her. Like you can if you want, but just write, just use the name, whatever the name makes you think of, do that, you know. Um, and so we agreed to, we wouldn't worry about whether it was in first person or third person or second person. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be narratively consistent. Like you could have a character doing something in the Billy Joel like chapter. And then he appears later in the Huey Lewis chapter doing something totally different. And that's fine. And it doesn't really matter, you know, and then, and then we'd wrap it all up in the chorus. Um, but yeah, I had kind of this idea of like Quincy Jones orchestrating all this. And he had made thriller as kind of his initial, occult testing ground on using melody to like cast spells on people because you know michael jackson's thrillers this was also a huge phenomenon like the biggest album of all time when it was out and that was his like running up and then we are the world would be him trying to use and craft a melody and then summon all these the collective spirit or all these pop stars and then maybe open some portal uh to another dimension or something i don't know it wasn't quite clear but some kind of nefarious <laughs> some kind of nefarious aims of his or, or somebody pretending to be him right that's kind of when we wrote it, it it becomes clear that maybe Quincy's not Quincy he's just like a demon wrapped in his skin or something um, but um, but yeah so we so we went back and forth and did that and it was a lot of fun like we took turns writing it um, like writing chapters and didn't do much editing of our of each other's work which we did on the first novella that was the most satisfying part for me when we we wrote initial rough draft and then we're editing our the own our own pieces that we wrote, and then we started editing each other's, which is super fun because it was like, like I would try to do something, I'd be like, "Are you okay if I do this?" And he'd be like, "Yeah, go for it." And then vice versa. So it was really fun. This this one I think was more um, us just writing each chapter by our own, and then maybe doing some subtle changes. But we were wrapping it up, um, and then he, so this is in uh, March of this year, and he said. Um, he reached out and he was like, hey, there's this interactive fiction festival happening online called Spring Thing. And what if we took this, We Are the World, and we recrafted it to be 
an online interactive thing. So kind of like choose your own adventure style where there's certain choices you make that determine the narrative. And I was super excited about that. Um, and I don't know anything about coding, but Mike does. So he, so basically we had a month, we had 30 days to redo this narrative. And so I, I would every night would work on taking a chapter and splitting it into units and then making these choices happen. And there's, you know, different things that happen based on the choices. And then I would send it to him and he would code it, send it back to me. I would do QA on it just to check for bugs and stuff. And then we kind of race to the finish line like that. So it's not, it's not perfect. Like we definitely want to do a version two and maybe craft this whole meta narrative around it and fix all the bugs and change things up. But, but it was really satisfying and a fun experience. And so, yeah, people can play that online now. So it's on the festival. Um, it won an audience award for most bizarre, <laughs> which, <laughs> which, which we appreciated. We're like, great, perfect. That's a great award to get. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so yeah, so that's been, that was the most recent thing um, that I've done, which is really exciting. Also, be, like we were talking about my more minimalist style, like this is very maximalist and me trying to channel Mike's energy um, and, but in my own way. And that's, that was really satisfying to me. Like I normally don't, like I don't think of myself as having influences, but when I collaborate, I definitely try to meld with the energy of whoever I'm working with because um, it's fun, you know, and you get outside your own stuff and you create stuff that's surprising. Like even now, when I go back and look at it, like I was testing it the other day to see how it was working when you click on different things and there were lines I was coming across that I just had no recollection of writing and they were very surprising to me and, and exciting. Oh, that feels so good when that happens. Yeah, yeah. I love that. All right, I'll give you the last word and then we'll get into uh, the the reading portion of this show. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess on that end, I'd, I'd encourage people to go to springthing.net. Um, that's the, the festival. Um, and not just check out ours. There's a lot of other, there's like, a, I don't know, maybe 15 or 20 different entries that were in there um, and just get a feel for what's that, what that's like. Um, interactive fiction, there's a lot of people doing interesting stuff. Um, but I think like, yeah, play, play slash read We Are The World. Um, I, think, I think people get a kick out of it. Good. Any any uh, anywhere you want people to find you or your other work? Um, that is a good question. Uh, I've got a website that's kind of dormant. Uh, I mean, I'll, it's up to date in terms of stuff I'm doing, but that's uh, the pinupstakes.com. Um, you'll find videos that I do there, uh, links to some work, um, you know, some various articles I've written. Um, so that's kind of a good one-stop shop to get some backgrounds. Um, I haven't looked at it in a long time, so I'm not, there may be stuff on there that I might take down, <laughs> but, um, but it's a good place. And then otherwise I'm on, um, Instagram is deathbedding and Twitter. Um, I forget my handle on Twitter, but you just search for Dan Hoyt and you'll find me. Yeah, so this is, uh, so this is interactive. So I think the way we'll do this. Um, and I've done this live uh, three or four times. I just did it the other day, which was fun. So basically, I'll prompt you on occasion for to just to choose between two words, and then whatever word you choose, that'll then determine the next paragraph that I read, um, and we'll take it from there. So Billy, this is Billy Joel, and the first right off the bat, we're choosing between normal or light. Let's go with light. Okay. The light pollution is a thing. 
Billy Joel wants to know which God name you use facing west at 3 a.m. on a Tuesday in the Northern Hemisphere in January. He turns to Eddie Murphy and says, I don't really know how to snap necks, so I'm just sawing off heads. Is this right? But there is no Eddie Murphy. Purple or diatribe? Purple. Sky like purple sequins. The faint echo of Frida's, I know there's something going on, rumbling through the valley. Billy Joel adjusts the pouches lining his utility belt. He tosses a fistful of cinnamon and turmeric to form a billowing, burnt orange cloud. He says, every question is a shipwreck. The cloud responds, every answer is a mutiny. The mob rule at the end of his mind cuts the rope. Choice or cicada? Cicada. Cicada-crusted tree trunks. Billy Joel is roaming the forest with a thermal headset and a machete. He stumbles through a blue mindscape toward obscure splotches of yellowy flocks. Later, he's draining rabbit blood into a vat of fatty remains. There's a scent in the air of off-brand flatulence. The vat overflows. Billy Joel rings out the last rabbit carcass and says something Aramaic-sounding. He's improving. Private or rumor? Private. His eyes are the entrance to a very private club. The sanctuary is in flames. Billy Joel circles it, dancing a profane jig. He is sweating so hard right now. His hard hat keeps slipping over his eyes, but this just makes him jig even more profanely. Huey Lewis joins him in a synchronized jig. Kim Carnes joins him and Huey Lewis in a synchronized jig. Kenny Loggins joins him and Huey Lewis and Kim Carnes in a synchronized jig. The night is a white blur of diminishment. All bodies orbit and are orbited. There's vomit spraying from Billy Joel's ecstatic maw. Now he's stabbing at the ground with his face. Basic or potato? Basic. Effectively pawning off his most basic emotions, the trees part and the colossal form of Yah Kagurth steps forward. It towers over him. Billy Joel is prostrating. He says, I must have passage. The form of Yah Kagurth shakes its head. Billy Joel says, have I not displayed a penitent physics? Do I not embody the requisite disgrace and acumen? Behold the jig. He gestures at the event horizon formed by the orbit of Huey Lewis and Kim Carnes and Kenny Loggins. He says, Behold the center from which we've all been spit. It's infinite gravity. Home is where oblivion is. Time is the mouth that swallows us. 